Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is possibly one of the most effective pieces of legislation ever passed in this country. It enfranchised hundreds of thousands of voters, particularly in the American South. But today, in recent years, there's this attack on voting rights. There's been this continuous assault on access to the ballot box, and that takes the form of stricter voter ID requirements, meritless claims of rigged elections, baseless accusations of voter fraud, and intimidation. I came across a book this summer called Uncounted, A Crisis of Voter Suppression in America by Gilda R. Daniels. And it is a must-read. I am so lucky to have Ms. Daniels on today to talk about the book. Gilda, welcome to The Trial Brief. It's not too often where you get to speak to the author of one of your favorite books. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here. This book, again, it's Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in America. I think it is one of the most important books of the summer. And I think that the way that you lay out the issues in the book, and really you used your almost 100-year-old grandmother as the framework for the discussion for the history and bringing us up to date with respect to the issues on voter suppression. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in voting rights? Thank you again for having me today. As you know, I'm a former deputy chief in the Civil Rights Division voting section at the Department of Justice. I've been a voting rights attorney for more than two decades and have spent a considerable amount of my career certainly doing civil rights and particularly voting rights. This has certainly become essentially my life's work <laughs> and certainly having the bird's eye view as well as a high level view of uh, voting rights in our country and seeing the cycles and systems that are in place led me certainly to write the book. And I wrote the book primarily to connect the dots. When I was a kid, I used to like these connect the dot pages. I don't know if you played with them or used them when you were a child. Absolutely. Where it's, just a page, yeah. it's just a page with numbers on it. You have to connect the dots in sequence in order to get a clear picture, right? If you don't do that, if you connect the one to the five instead of the one to the two, you're going to get a completely different picture. So I thought it was important to connect the dots. So I wanted to use this book to help people to see a clear picture of how we actually vote in our country and certainly how voter suppression is used to, unfortunately, make it harder for uh, people to vote, and how historically as well as contemporaneously, black and brown voters have been the persons who've been the most marginalized in voter suppression. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, it can't be overstated that this is a crisis. You did note in the book that you hoped to sound the alarm you know, to this crisis of voter suppression. And the very foundation of our democracy really relies on fair voting. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, we look at what's going on today, that, that makes this, um, in your analysis, uh, that much more important. One of the great things that this book does is it reveals the similarities between pre-civil rights era methods of either violence or intimidation that were meant to disenfranchise black voters and what the methods are that are used today through legislation and litigation. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think it's important for us to recognize that these disenfranchising methods are not new and that they have been utilized for centuries. We can start with the founding fathers 
and look at how at the beginning of our country, we said that all men are created equal. And at the same time, we created a three-fifths compromise for the purposes of apportionment, right? So for the purposes of determining the number of representatives, we would count enslaved persons as three-fifths of a person, whereas all other persons would be counted as a whole person, right? So from the, from the beginning, we set out this second-class citizenship where we designated groups of people who would not benefit. And that also included indigenous people, that they were not afforded the right to vote. The right to vote was given at the beginning of our country only to white men who owned property. You can fast forward 100 years to the Civil War Amendments, to the Civil War and certainly the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. But the 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. In doing so, black men certainly took on that responsibility and saw the vote as certainly the highest level of citizenship and registered in very large numbers and not only registered, but were also very active in the governing process. Uh, Black men were elected on state, local, and federal levels. Say often that in the 1880s, certainly 1890s, we had two African-Americans elected to the United States Senate from the state of Mississippi. We only have three African-Americans in the United States Senate today. So we haven't come that far in regards to representation, right? And we haven't had two African-Americans elected from the South to the United States Senate since the 1890s. And after we saw those high levels of participation and representation, white supremacists and certainly segregationists saw that as a threat to power and Two things happened. The federal government removed its protection from the South. And the second thing that happened was that the states had to have constitutional conventions in order to return to the Union. In having these constitutional conventions, Southern states took it upon themselves to institute disenfranchising mechanisms that they said would remove Blacks from the voter rolls. And they did so very effectively. So all of the gains that were made in a very short period of time from about 1890 to early 1900s was wiped away with the institution of poll taxes, grandfather clauses, uh, literacy tests, vouchers, felon disenfranchisement, as well as economic terror and violence. You could lose your right to life, <laughs> certainly if you utilized your right um, to vote. Those mechanisms were put in place in places like Alabama, where you had more than 140,000 black men registered in the 1890s. After the constitutional conventions and the implementation of literacy tests and poll taxes in Alabama in early 1900, and meaning 1910, 1906, and 1910, there were less than 50 black men registered to vote. So it went from 140,000 to less than 50. Wow. That's, how effect, that's how effective those disenfranchising mechanisms were the poll tax, which was very, very effective, the poll tax, literacy test, et cetera. Mm. If you go from certainly the Civil War amendments and Reconstruction, there's about 100 years from the 15th Amendment and the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And certainly during that time, blacks, particularly in the South, were essentially forbidden <laughs> from casting a ballot. And note now that in 1920, Right. This year, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. You said I use my grandmother as a framework in the book. 
Uh, she was born in 1919. The 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. She should have voted for the first time in the 1940s. However, she did not vote for the first time until the 1960s. Wow. Um, because she's an African-American woman who lived in the South. Mm-hmm. And those poll taxes, literacy tests, and other devices, as well as, you know, economic terror. My grandparents were sharecroppers. My grandfather was a sharecropper. My grandmother was a domestic. You lose your job for casting a ballot. So she did not vote until the 1960s, certainly the passage of the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act of 65 was one of the most important pieces of legislation that has ever been passed. You know, there were gains gains made there. And if you can just sort of take us through a little bit about what the act accomplished and where it's sort of been scaled back, if at all. Ronald Reagan called it the crown jewel, right? So mm-hmm. it was certainly uh, a monumental, it's also been called a monumental piece of legislation. Certainly it was, it's considered one of the most effective pieces of legislation, certainly civil rights legislation that this country has ever passed. Prior to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, voter registration for African-Americans was in the single digits in some states like Mississippi in March of 1965, less than 7% of black voters were registered to vote as compared to almost 70% of white voters, right? And so the fear and intimidation, the literacy test and other devices were reasons why blacks were not Registering for it, I have I, I include in the book some firsthand accounts. Oprah says that everyone has a story, and I say that everyone has a voting rights story. <laughs> I uh, just spoke to my friends and colleagues and relatives, and uh, I have a colleague at uh, m- my law school whose mother uh, was a graduate of South Carolina State University and got her master's degree from Michigan State University. She got married and lived in Montgomery, Alabama, had two kids, was a stay-at-home mom, went to register to vote uh, prior to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, went to register to vote, uh, had to read parts of the Alabama Constitution, and then was asked how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. She said over 100. She was told that she was wrong. <laughs> that was the wrong answer, and that she could not register to vote. Right, and those and literacy tests of that sort were very common in the South in that time. And the Voting Rights Act eliminated those barriers to registration. Much more than that, it established federal registrars. So there were federal employees who were deployed to the South to register Black people to vote under the Voting Rights Act because white registrars in the South refused to do so. So. Voter registration increased tremendously after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, as well as voter participation and the number of elected officials of color. It's important to note that the Voting Rights Act impacted not only black voters, but Latinx voters, Asian American voters, right? All certainly voters of color. Another account in my book talks about Ms. Jimenez, who migrated from Puerto Rico to New York City and had to take a literacy test in the 1960s before she could cast a ballot. We have more amendments that impact the right to vote uh, than any other right, but certainly the Voting Rights Act made some extremely effective gains in regards to the right to vote, particularly for people of color in the South and uh, Southwest. 
Right. In the book, you, you really do a nice job of laying out, you know, and explaining these voter suppression tools historically. And then what you do, which I really, I really found sobering, I guess, is that you then take those historical suppression tools and you, you equate them, I think, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you, it seems mm-hmm. that you equate them to contemporary tools. So, for example, you, were, you know, we're talking about poll taxes. Um, you equate voter ID laws to poll taxes. And I, I, it was really, and when you, you know, you go through and, and we'll talk about some of the other things, but that was really eye opening. And I'd, I'd love to hear you tell us about that a little bit. Well, when I was at the Department of Justice, we actually, I think, had the, the, the first wave of voter ID laws in Georgia tried to implement a voter ID law in 2006. And there were challenges to those voter ID laws, certainly in Georgia and other places that they were the equivalent of a poll tax because they required that voters provide underlying documents, right, in order to get the identification that was needed. With a poll tax, you had to pay the tax certainly prior to the uh, election, and but you, you, you could not vote unless you had that piece of paper with you when you went to the election booth. Now, you might have paid the poll tax a year ago or six months ago, right? But you had to make sure that you had that piece of paper to say that you paid your poll tax in order to cast the ballot. So similarly, having a voter ID, right, having this type of documentation to say, yes, I am who I say I am, we found that it certainly has a disproportionate uh, impact, adverse impact on people of color. For example, in 2006 with the Georgia voter ID as it was um, as it as it was in, at that time, we found that the voter ID required only very few forms of identification. Government issued IDs, driver's license, military ID, passport. Uh, and 25% of African Americans in Georgia at that time did not have a car. So if you know that 25% of the people in your state don't have a car, why would you require a driver's license right. as the type of identification that would allow someone to register and vote? Now, if you go from 2006 to 2013, um, where certainly states like Texas and North Carolina implemented uh, implemented restrictive voter ID laws as well. And in Texas, there were three different federal courts that found that their voter ID was intentionally discriminatory. And you know how difficult it is to get an intentional <laughs> discrimination sure. to get to, to, to find to find intent and certainly find intentional discrimination. Right. But three different Federal court said that the voter ID law was intentionally discriminatory. And in fact, more than 600,000 black and brown people did not have the types of ID that the state of Texas said was required to cast the ballot. Um, so, but having that barrier, having to take that documentation in order to cast the ballot is certainly one of the way, reasons why I equate it with a poll tax. Right. 
And I, I think one of the, the really effective ways that you drive this home in the book are where you, you lay out the impact on real voters, you know, specific instances with specific people. And it, that really, really was, was powerful. And, you know, if you'd like, I, I'd love for you to just to pick one, if you could, you know, one that stands out to you and maybe use that as an example. It's also important that, you know, many of these accounts came from court cases, right? From yeah. the opinions of the judges that, you know, these instances were certainly, certainly real. I found them impactful as well. You probably have one in mind that you want me to read, don't you? Well, I, I like, <laughs> not really. I like them all. I mean, I, I think they're all really, they, they really illustrate the, the issue and the problem. And, you know, there's the issue of, you know, Betty Jones in Wisconsin. You know, you're talking about um, someone who was born at home in Tennessee, right, in 1935. A, a doctor assists in her birth, but there's no hospital nearby that serves African Americans. There's no official birth certificate. Um, she then moves to Cleveland, Ohio in 1949. She registers to vote there when she's 21. Uh, and, and she lived through a time when African Americans had a fight, you know, obviously for their for the right to vote. And mm-hmm. she was always politically active. I think if I'm looking at my notes that she had voted in every election since 1956. Yeah. Right? You know, Wisconsin, I, I, the legislature passed a restrictive photo ID law that required Mrs. Jones to obtain a birth certificate in order to obtain the, the required photo ID. And, mm-hmm. and even though she possessed several forms of valid ID, you know, she had a, a current Ohio driver's license, uh, which was renewed the previous year. She realized that she would need to get a Wisconsin ID if she wanted to vote. She began a long process of requesting a delayed post-dated birth certificate from the state of Tennessee to use to prove her identity so that she could obtain the ID she needed to vote in Wisconsin. The process required her to present her parents' records and documentary proof of her place and date of birth. Mrs. Jones experienced major difficulty in tracking down these records. Mrs. Jones made multiple requests to the Tennessee Office of Vital Records for a delayed birth certificate, which were denied. Mrs. Jones kept reapplying and providing additional information, fees, and notarized documents as she received them. Ultimately, after four months and more than $100 in fees and approximately 50 hours of time making and following up on document requests, Mrs. Jones finally obtained a delayed post-dated birth certificate from the state of Tennessee in April 2012. Days before she received it, Mrs. Jones and her daughter decided to go to a different DMV from the one to which they originally applied to see if her application might be more favorably received. They took bags with copies of all of Mrs. Jones's documentation, including all existing records about her, and explained her ordeal. Mrs. Jones provided that DMV with her Social Security card, her valid Ohio license, the birth certificates of her children, and the official letter from the Tennessee Office of Vital Records documenting that no record of her birth existed. Mrs. Jones's daughter also had to provide her valid Wisconsin identification and attest that she lived with Mrs. Jones. Ultimately, without Mrs. Jones having a birth certificate proving her identity and legal presence, and after an appeal to and meeting with the supervisor of the DMV office, Mrs. Jones was finally issued a Wisconsin state ID for which she had to pay $35. Though she obtained a Wisconsin photo ID, 
she did not have one during the primary election. Fortunately, shortly before the election, a judge issued an injunction barring implementation of the Wisconsin photo ID law. If that injunction had not been in place, Mrs. Jones would not have been able to cast her ballot in that election for the first time since 1956. Incredible. It really is. It's incredible. And and you do point out, well, I guess Mrs. Jones pointed out that she was concerned that many others like her in those yeah. in that situation probably don't have the help, the time, and the resources that she had to obtain that right. Wisconsin photo ID. And really incredible. Right. Um, right. And, and I think uh, what I hope to explain is that this is it's actually very commonplace, certainly for elderly people and elderly black people in particular who, you know, who weren't born in hospitals. Like my grandmother wasn't born in a hospital. She was born a, mid, a midwife birthed her. And uh, there were no records. She didn't have a birth certificate, right? So, it, you know, it's actually uh, very common for people of a certain age. Uh, and also, you know, women who change their names, um, once they get married, those, you know, it, it, the, the, the cost and the time that's involved in getting the type of documentation that's needed for these very restrictive types of ID can be enormous. And I think it's, it's important to point out that, you know, the picture I'm painting has to do with restrictive ID. There are places where you only have to provide your signature or get or provide a piece of mail with your address on it, right? It's those that require these government-issued forms of identification that make it much harder for people to participate in the voting process. Right. You know, one one last area. I mean, I could talk to you all day about this book. I, I really, it, it really is. It's it's fantastic, and I'm. Thank you so much. I, I know what I'm going to be sending everybody uh, for Christmas uh, <laughs> this year. So the, the issue of, of voter deception, I also found very very mm-hmm. interesting. And you know, it starts off right away with an Atlanta area mayor posting on his personal Facebook account. You know, remember voting days. Republicans vote on Tuesday, November eighth, and Democrats vote on Wednesday, November ninth. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe if you could briefly talk talk to us about uh, voter deception historically and, and bring it to the present day. Most states and certainly the federal government do not have laws against voter deception or certainly that penalize uh, voter deception. And I think it's because people don't see the impact, but it's all too common for certainly prior to an election for there to be flyers in uh, neighborhoods of people of color that say things like, if you have outstanding traffic tickets, you cannot vote, right? Or uh, if you have outstanding child support, you cannot vote. Right. Right. And so those those things, and so it's a way, and, and some of these documents look very uh, real. And the level of deception is certainly certainly high. And I think it's, it's important to kind of tie voter deception to certainly the conversation that we are having about interference, right? And we're talking about Russian interference and interference from other countries. And it's who can, you know, who, what information can you trust? Right. And, you know, where, where, where are the uh, trusted sources? And I think it's particularly problematic when uh, the misinformation is coming from trusted sources or sources that we should trust, like the federal government. So this this idea of you know false information and distributing false information 
is how I define certainly distributing false information with the intent of preventing eligible people to vote is certainly how I define voter deception, that we don't have statutes that prevent it. I think it's even more troubling. We know that political speech is the highest form of speech, and it's certainly the most protected form of speech. But I think when we have politicians who, like, for example, the, the, the example I give at the beginning of the chapter, where you know, it's, a, it's a mayor of a city who's saying Republicans vote on Tuesday, <laughs> Democrats vote on Wednesday, right? right? That, right. It's like, you can't, I argue that that kind of speech is not protected. Right, and that when you are deceiving people uh, in 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 a way that they don't believe that they can use their fundamental right to vote, then that's when I think you've you've certainly crossed the line. When you're saying these things with intent to to stop people from from realizing their rights, then that's when I think the line is crossed. It's interesting because voter deception is my nerdiest chapter. I think. <laughs> Well, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I liked it so much. Right. All the all the nerds really like. You know, let's talk about the voter deception chapter, right? Because <laughs> um, you know, yeah, try to have these parallels. Certainly, we're talking about political deception and public deception, and and how we can make these, you know, demarcations. And certainly, why I think I make an argument of why we need to pay attention to this because I do believe that it's harmful to our democracy. Certainly if people don't believe that they can cast a ballot because of false information that's being disseminated from public officials. Sure. And in that chapter, you, you mentioned that you had, you know, when you were at the uh, department of justice uh, that you Mm -hmm. participated in, in many federal election observations, you know, you were, you were on the ground, I guess. Um, yes. And you talked about one that was, you claim, and, and tell the story, uh, that was the most harrowing one uh, that you were involved in. I found it interesting, and I think everyone will as well. Well, certainly under, under the vote on Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, um, Section 4 allows for federal observers, or at least it did, <laughs> prior to the uh, Shelby County versus uh, Holder decision. Under the Voting Rights Act, uh, federal employees would go to various localities to observe elections to ensure that the election was being held in a non-discriminatory fashion. And and we could only observe. For example, we saw something happening or someone was saying to voters, you know, why don't you learn the language, which are things that were said, <laughs> those things were said during elections. Or if only black voters were being asked to do certain things like show ID and white voters were not. We could observe those things the federal observers would call them into someone like me, who was the attorney on site, and then we would communicate with the with the um, election officials that these things were happening to get them corrected on the day of the election. But we couldn't intervene at that. Like we couldn't say, "Hey, stop asking only black people for election." Well, one of the first places I had to do federal observer work was certainly was in the was in the South. And I did not know until I had gotten there that the day before that the black mayoral candidate's son, I believe, had been shot <laughs> in front of the <laughs> uh, current nice. mayor's home. And I'm wow. like, wait a minute. This is like 1960s stuff. Right. <laughs> wow. This is long past. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, this is well past 1960s. I'm just like, how in the world? And you could certainly feel the racial tensions. It was palpable. Uh, and, you know, to... to to provide the service of, 
you know, having the, the you know Department of Justice there observing the election, I think certainly helped to at least mitigate, I guess, the tension that was in the city, even if it was for a very short time. Um, being able to do that kind of work was um, was important, and it's since certainly since the Shelby County decision. The, the Department of Justice is of the opinion that that, that kind of observer work is uh, no longer allowed unless there's a consent decree or court order right. that provides for it. Right. Yeah, we could do a, a whole podcast on Shelby. You know, the nerd, the, <laughs> the nerdy guys like me, I, I would love to, but yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Gilda, I can't thank you enough for, for being here. And, you know, I just thought I really can't wait till Christmas to send the books out because I got to get it out before election day, right? So I I'm, you got to, you must, you must. That's my Labor you Day. Must. That's going to be my Labor Day, uh, my Labor Day thing. So buy them in bulk. There you go. <laughs> so w- what are you doing these days? What, what, where can we find you? Are you are you doing another book in the future? You know, I'm a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, so classes start <laughs> very mm-hmm. soon online, no less. Right. Uh, but I am uh, writing um, another law review article actually right now. And certainly looking at the next the next book as well. Uh, but the, the next article that I'm writing, since you're nerdy, the next <laughs> law review article uh, that I'm writing is called Democracy's Destiny. Mm-hmm. And really, wants that, one of the things that I argue is that we've really been dancing around the edges in regards to democracy, saying things such as, well, why don't we just, you know, have same-day voter registration or you know, automatic voter registration. It's like, no, but the fundamental issue here is this is a, fun, yeah, this is, this is a right that all citizens should enjoy. Mm-hmm. Right? Instead of trying to come up with these, a policy here and a policy there that'll make it easier. How about we, you know, there's, a, there's all this uproar around universal mail-in balloting. If we had universal suffrage, how about that? You know, <laughs> that's that's yeah. what I think is, that's what I think is democracy's destiny, right? Like that, if we're really going to be a, a democracy, then why don't we give everybody the right to vote? Sure. How about that? The reason the book, you know, the book is great because it does lay out the historical and it lays out uh, contemporary issues, but it also lays a, a, a path forward as well. You know, you talk about how to use the resources going forward that we have available through litigation, legislation, social media, et cetera. And I, I think that's an important part of the book. And, and I think that's something that... Um, you know, makes the book. Agitate, agitate, agitate. There you go. There you go. What did, what did John Lewis say? Good trouble? Get into good trouble? Good trouble. That's it. Absolutely. All right. Big good trouble. Well, right. Gilda, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it was great speaking thank with you. you. And, thank uh, you. And I'll have to get you a signed copy of the book. You have to figure out how to do that. Oh, uh, that would be great. We will figure that out for sure. Okay. All great. right. Thank you. And hopefully talk thank to you, you soon. Thank you, sir. All righty. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.